Well, hello there. This is Pastor Trey from Palmview Christian Church. And uh, today, we are finishing up our four-week series on what happy couples know. Um, I, I want to talk today about what some counselors consider the most important choice that uh, people will make in marriages, uh, especially if they want to be happy couples. This choice often feels more like a reaction than a decision, and so oftentimes you don't even know you're making this decision. But it would be good for us to see how we're already making this choice. Though we may not even be aware that we're making the choice, it would be good to to keep our minds on making the choice because if we become more aware of it, maybe, just maybe, we will begin to make a better choice. The, The choice is actually found in the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to some of the Christians in the first century in the city of Corinth. Now, the letter was written primarily to Gentile or non-Jewish um, new believers. Uh, they, were, they were trying to sort this whole Christian thing out. They, they were new. They, they were brand new to this whole there's only one God thing, for example. Uh, they were wondering what they were supposed to do with all of their other pagan gods that they used to worship. You see, they used to go to the temple. They used to have their own religious practices back in the day, and it would look a certain way. And now they're finding that this new religion, this new faith in the one true God, uh, this Christianity thing, it was way, way different. So one of Paul's goals as he's talking to these believers was to help them understand a couple of things. First of all, again, they had to understand that there was just one true God. And then they had to understand that that one true God, Jehovah, was actually different in his expectations of his people than the pagan gods had been. You see, back then, in ancient pagan worship, the gods really didn't care about people. They actually toyed with people. They manipulated people. At times, they would even come down and have sexual intimacy with people according to their myths. But they didn't really care about people. And so because of this belief in pagan religions, there was not a strong sense of what we would consider morality. What I mean is that as a pagan, you weren't required to alter your lifestyle, for example. You weren't required to alter the way that you treated others to make your God, those pagan gods, happy. No, you made the pagan gods happy by making sacrifices, And you would sacrifice things that had value to you in order to make them happy. Some of the pagan peoples would actually sacrifice human beings, oftentimes even children, in order to keep their gods appeased. And those sacrifices would ensure good crops and good health. Well, good health for those not being sacrificed, of course. uh, And uh, victory in battle. So one of the main messages... uh, in, in 1 Corinthians here, is that in Christianity, it's totally different than the pagan religions on how God actually cared about His creation. He actually cared about people, and consequently, if He cared about people in order to please Him, you were to treat people like He would treat people. In other words, you were called as a Christian in this new religion to love as God loved. Now, that should sound familiar to you if you've been listening to this, this four-week series, because this is exactly what Jesus taught at the Last Supper. Love each other as I have loved you. And 
Hopefully you've noticed how often this is popping up in the series. Love each other as we have been loved. God loved us. Jesus loved us. Therefore, we are to love each other with that same kind of love if we want to please him. That, above any other sacrifice, was the thing that was going to be most pleasing to God. That his kids would be getting along, that they would love each other, that they would take after him. Now, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, there's a ton of stuff that Paul writes um, and among all this information that he gives, he's trying to get them to see the type of love that God has for his people and wants his people to have for each other. And so in 1 Corinthians, you actually get an entire chapter devoted to love. And in fact, there's so much in it, it's become known out of all the other chapters in the Bible, it's become known as the love chapter. And if you've been to a wedding chances are you've heard this. So I want you to take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians. That's in the New Testament there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where we read about this godly kind of love. So we we begin in chapter 13, actually with one verse back in chapter 12, starting in the last part of verse 31, where he says, uh, and now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Translation, I don't care how great of a preacher I am. I don't care how good of a speaker you are. You, you should never, ever judge your preacher, your pastor, based on his preaching or speaking skills. Because there are great pastors, great speakers, I'm sorry, out there who make really lousy pastors. I won't name names. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to slander anybody. But you, many of you know. You, you've, you've heard a great speaker, and yet you start to get to know the guy, and he's, he's not the best pastor, shepherd of the flock. Um, you can't tell what, a kind of, what kind of a person is, what, what kind of a person that speaker is from just a sermon. You've you got to look at how they live their life. You've got to look at how they actually treat people. So you want to know if they are good uh, pastors, if they are following Jesus closely, then you've got to ask their wives, their kids, and their next-door neighbors. You've got to ask their congregation if that person is a good, kind, loving person person or not. He goes on, verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. Literally in in the Greek text would, would render this saying, even if I'm the smartest person in the room, if I can explain anything in the Bible, I could become the new Bible answer man. I can answer any of your questions. If I don't have what? If I don't have love, I am literally a nobody, which means that I can have all the knowledge in the world, but if I don't have love, I have no effect whatsoever on this world. Not real, not real effect. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain 
nothing. Now, that actually seems like that would be something very impressive to give all that you have to the poor. But then you start, who, who would do this? Who would do this? Who would actually take everything that they have and sell everything and, and, then, and then give that money to the poor and then just go live poor themselves? I mean, who, whoever would do that, we would be incredibly impressed. Uh, we would think that they were a pretty spiritual person. Uh, who, who would then give up their body to hardship or to physical pain or to even death? Boy, that must be somebody that would please God. Sure, except when we remember that in Scripture we're told that God is not pleased with sacrifices and rituals as much as he is interested in the condition of one's heart. Paul says, even if you do that, that kind of practice won't benefit us at all if we do not do it out of a sense of love, if we don't have love. Now, what does that mean to have love? You might say, I have love. Uh, and if I were to ask you, uh, what does that mean? You might say, I don't know, but I have it. It sounds wonderful and spiritual when you hear it. I have love. I love. You know, I love carpet. I love desk. I love lamp. You know, what does it mean to have love? When you have something, then that's not, it's not just an ethereal feeling, is it? You see, a lot of people in our culture, they think love is just a feeling. I mean, that, that's what you get from the songs that we sing or the movies that we watch. It's a feeling. It, it's like they feel compassionate towards people who are going through a hard time. That's what love is. They feel sorry for people. That's, that's what it means to have love is to feel for people. Folks, the, 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 the kind of love that Paul is talking about here is actually way more practical than just feeling. You know, the Greeks and many of you have heard this somewhere in a sermon at some point of your life, the Greeks had several different words for several different kinds of love. You know, I can love my wife. We just celebrated five years this past week, and I am so appreciative of Rhonda, who opened up her Airbnb for us there in Prineville. What an amazing time that we had, and we were able to enjoy one another's company and express love for one another and yet, Rhonda also served us some steak that uh, Jenna, her, her daughter, had uh, raised and, and had prepared for us. And I love steak. But I better love my wife differently than I love steak, right? And, and, then, and then we went to see a movie, and I loved the movie, but I better love the movie differently than I love steak and differently than I love my wife See, the Greeks were way more verbiose in their explanations about descriptions about things. We have one word, love. I love steak. I love my wife. I love the movie. They would actually have different words for those different kinds of love. If they were talking about a physical kind of intimate sexual love, they had a word, which was eros, where we get our word erotic. If they were talking about love between friends or siblings that were close, they would use the word philos, a different word, philos, where we would get our word Philadelphia, which would be the city of this brotherly love. There was even a, a word of having a love or an affinity for something, and that was storge. But, but the love that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians is the, the Greek word agape. And this is a love that is not just a feeling. It is always practical. It's 
always putting the other person first. It's always willing to stick, to, to, to step to the back so that other people can go first. And that's weird. I'm sorry, that's weird for humanity, fallen, sinful, self-centered humanity. That's foreign. So Paul has to give some descriptive terms for it, and this is what you probably have heard when you went to a wedding, beginning in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Now let's break those, those descriptive terms down. Love is patient and kind. Patient and kind, that talks about deferring to the needs of other people. It's kind to others. It knows what other people need or want and is patient to have its own way before the other person can have their own way. Love doesn't envy. It's not jealous or proud. Same verse. It is quick to lift others up. It's quick to take note of other people's successes and talents it's it's the opposite of what a comedian one time talked about being the me monster. You know, you get into a party and you're trying to tell a story and somebody else has to have a story that's better than your story. This comedian said, don't ever get into a party and start to talk about a two wisdom tooth extraction story because your two wisdom tooth extraction story doesn't matter how gross or painful it was. Somebody's going to have a four wisdom tooth extraction story. That's the me monster. It's like, well, you're here, but me, I'm up here. You, me, you, me, you know, I'm, I'm much better than you. Agape love is not envious. It's not jealous or proud. It actually wants to put the other person first and lift them up. Verse 5, It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love is not rude, which means it does not dishonor other people. It's not self-seeking. Again, it's moving back to the back of the line again. It's not easily angered. keeps no records of wrongs. I remember talking to somebody who was in a counseling session who said to the counselor, he said, you know what, every time we get into an argument, my wife gets historical. And the counselor says, well, you, no, you mean hysterical. And he goes, oh, no, 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 historical. She starts bringing up all those things in the past that I've ever done. See, love is not easily angered. It keeps actually no records of those past wrongs. And then Paul says something that is Radical radical. It's huge. We're going to talk about it in detail in in just a bit because this is really the last thing that that we have to look at in regards to what happy couples know. But he starts with a statement that we'll look at in just a second. Uh, Look at verse 6. He says this. He says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Now that's a very odd sentence. That's a very foreign concept. What what is he talking about? It's not easily uh, understood unless we really look at it in the context of the whole thing. But we're going to come back to that because then he lets us have it in verse 7. He says it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now, most of that list there in verse 7 is kind of a duh. But one out of the one 
characteristic, one description of love, agape love, in that sentence kind of stands out. It kind of comes out of left field. Look at there. It says love always trusts. Now, that's, see, for me, that's odd. And it, it probably for you, if you think about it, that love always trusts. Man, you can see how love always protects. Sure. We can protect other people. Even if we disagree with other people, even when they are wrong, we can still protect them, right? And we can always hope that things get better. We, we can have hope. Love hopes. Love hopes that we can get through this thing. Love also perseveres. We can understand that, that many times it is a struggle that we have to, to, to push through, hoping that there's going to maybe a chance for things to get better. But man, when we say it always trusts, always trusts, love, trusts, no, uh 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 Because trusting, there's a risk involved to that that's not there in protection or hope or persevering. It's a risk to trust because, you got, because that's not dependent upon you. That's now dependent upon the one that you love, the one that you have to trust, the one who doesn't seem very trustworthy at times. And yet, this seems to be a foundational habit that all happy couples share. Now, how so? Well, let me illustrate it like this. From time to time, in every relationship, I don't care if it's a marriage relationship or any other kind of relationship, there will always be this, from time to time, there will be a gap, a gap that exists, a gap between what we expect somebody to do and what the reality is that we experience, a, a gap be, be, between what they say that they will do, what time that they'll be there, what they will quit doing, whatever, a gap between what they say and what we actually experience from them. And in every single instance, when you reach those gaps in your relationship, you have a choice. You have a choice that you must make. You, you might not even, again, realize that you're making it because you, so often it seems just like a response, a, a reaction, just kind of an automatic knee-jerk. Well, we don't think it's a choice, but the, cho- the choice is there. The choice that we must make is what are you going to fill that gap in with? There's going to be a gap between what you expected and what you experience. Now, what are you going to put in that gap? That's the choice. If we will fill that gap with trust, choosing to be the best, or we will fill that gap with cynicism, choosing to assume the worst. We will either fill that gap with trust. I I don't know why he's late. I don't know why she didn't follow through, but you know what? I'm sure that there's a good explanation, and and if I got all of the information, I'm I'm sure it's going to make sense. So we'll either fill that gap with trust, choosing to believe the best, or we're going to fill it with cynicism, choosing to assume the worst. Like, oh, man, again? Of course. What else would I expect from him? What else should I have expected from her? Now, before you... Accuse me of wearing rose-colored glasses, church. I know you may not want to believe this is possible. But happy couples are the ones who have made it a habit, a choice. A choice to believe the best rather than to assume the worst. This is what Paul means when he says love always trusts. 
Or in maybe in another version it says it believes all things. It, it, it's a decision to trust. Perhaps you have heard the old preacher illustration about the great blonde and a true story uh, of a man turn of the century who he was a tightrope walker called the great blondin and, and his publicist made it would find these crazy things stunts for the great blondin to do it to attract these large crowds and to, to get their money and, and one time they actually put a rope across Niagara Falls and the great blondin was going to walk the tightrope across uh, Niagara Falls and they put the publicity out and everybody showed up and they were all excited and the great blondin went up there I am the great blondin do you believe and they said yes we believe we believe and so he actually got out on the tightrope and he walked up and down across Niagara Falls the crowd is roaring they love it then he said now as I the great blondin am, am the great blondin I'm going to do something amazing I'm going to actually put somebody in a wheelbarrow and I'll push that wheelbarrow across on this tightrope across Niagara Falls do you believe I can do this and the crowd was all we believe we believe we believe and then he said okay who's going to get into the wheelbarrow and crickets chirped because they might have said that they believed, but believing is a risk nobody wanted to get into the wheelbarrow. And as the story had been told to me decades ago, the publicist was the one who did not want this to fizzle out, so he was the one who got in the wheelbarrow, and it was fine. The great blonde had made it across. Everybody was alive. We believe. We believe. We believe. Happy couples choose to believe that it can happen. They choose to believe the best. And it is a risky thing, no doubt. But, but, see, because it's not a feeling, is it? Feelings come into play with, with belief, but faith is faith no matter what your feelings are. Belief is a choice. It's a decision to get into that wheelbarrow. Happy couples have come to the conclusion that they, no matter what, they will choose to believe the best about their spouse until they just can't believe the best anymore. Now, this is not just pie-in-the-sky thinking, by the way. Uh, there's an author named Marcus Buckingham. He wrote a book called One Thing You Need to Know, and in that book, he cites a 20-year study, 20-year study of happy couples. And he was looking for a common theme of these happy couples of, in the United States and Europe and Canada, and they had gone the distance. They had weathered a lot of storms. They had stayed together. And after a long, long time, they still actually enjoyed being married to one another. Now, these people were not the ones that just chose to stay together for the kids, for example. Uh, staying miserable, but not being able to afford an expensive divorce. They were couples who rated themselves. These were couples who literally rated themselves as having a fulfilling, satisfying marriage. So not ones that were just limping along. These guys rated themselves as very, very happy. Now, when you do research, you go with a, a, a hypothesis, some idea that you might be looking for. And so when they did this 20-year study, they went in with a hypothesis. They went in with some assumptions. One of the main assumptions was that couples who stayed together, they must have lowered their expectations of their marriage. That perhaps couples who stayed together learned to settle. 
they learned to settle for something less than great. That they knew that they knew that it was it was kind of a messed up relationship, but that's okay. I'll just lower my standards, lower my expectations. That they thought that those were the ones that would then stay together the longest. But their, their study actually showed the exact opposite of their assumption, of their hypothesis. In fact, for the most part, these happy couples actually rated their spouse higher, more favorable. They saw their spouse favorably in every category, and and it was higher, more favorably than what their spouse had actually rated themselves. So if their spouse rated themselves as a six on the scale of something, the, 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 the happy, in the happy couples, the ones that stayed together, the other spouse actually rated them higher. They, they rated their spouse higher than their spouse actually rated themselves. That doesn't happen, folks. We usually think higher of ourselves and less of our spouse. And their spouse thinks higher of themselves and less of us. But the researchers found that both husband and wife held an unrealistically positive view of each other. And they concluded, actually, one of their conclusions was that love must really be blind. <laughs> because there is no way that their spouse is really as, as wonderful as they had rated them. But the most exciting part of this study was that the researchers, the researchers concluded, and by the way, these were their words, they concluded that this positive view that each spouse held of the other, created an upward spiral of love. Now, doesn't that sound corny? That sounds totally corny. An upward spiral of love? That's how they termed it. See, what happened is this. The initial illusion that my husband is the greatest, that created in the wife a conviction that she really believed. No, no, really, my husband really is the greatest. That conviction then that, that, their, that their spouse was the greatest led them into a stronger sense of security. Because their spouse was so wonderful, they felt very secure with their spouse. And then that security led them to a higher level of trust in their partner. And that high level of trust in their partner led to greater intimacy. Now, I've said this before. One of the greatest definitions for me of perfect intimacy comes from the description that we find in the Bible of Adam and Eve back in Genesis before sin entered into the picture. The Bible tells us there in Genesis that they were naked and unashamed. Think about that. Being naked and unashamed, that means that you feel secure with each other, that you actually trust each other. In his original series on what happy couples know, Pastor Andy Stanley put it like this, intimacy is a fearless reveal. Intimacy is a fearless reveal. So in this study then, finally, they found that that intimacy that had been fostered by this fearless reveal, this trust that they had, they found that that intimacy actually then nurtured a greater love for the other person, which then started the whole cycle back over again. And it was an upward cycle of love. Love bolstered the initial illusion that she is the greatest. 
which then created more conviction that she really is the greatest, which led to more security in the relationship, which led to more intimacy, and then to more love, and on and on and on and on. Folks, that's a proven thing. Not just pie in the sky, not just rose-colored glasses. This is not theoretical. It's a proven thing that there is an upward spiral of love when couples choose to believe the best about their spouse and not to be cynical. Now, obviously, obviously, there are things that make this a challenge because there are obstacles to trust. I get it. I know. The first obstacle is our experience. That the fact that there is a gap. I wanted this. I desired this. I had expected this. You told me that you would do this. And then, uh, uh, yes, that is an obstacle. Our experiences are real. I'm not naive about that. I I know what we're supposed to be doing about expectations and desires. But I I know that experiences are real. Our spouse's behavior can, can can be an obstacle. But it doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to still make that choice. It's just harder to make that choice. A second obstacle is then also who we are. All of our own baggage that we've brought into this relationship. Here in, in Oregon, there is a man, Dr. Larry Day, a counselor who talks about When you deal with one another, like, for example, when you're dealing with me, when you come and talk with me, when we're, when we're trying to, to have a relationship, when we're trying to have a conversation and, and things are, are, are needing to be done, you're not just dealing with the 53-year-old Trey. You're also dealing with a 35-year-old angry Trey who is very frustrated that he can't live up to the expectations of uh, the outer world and his job. You're also dealing with a 22-year-old confused Trey who has no idea what God wants him to do in his life. You're also dealing with a 17-year-old self-loathing Trey who doesn't think that he's worth anything. You see, I have baggage. And when you deal with me, you're dealing with all these other people too that I bring along with me, and I'm dealing with you and all of your baggage as well. See, the baggage is part of who I am. And those things can be obstacles in being able to believe the best in my spouse. Because at times, she may do something that triggers the 17-year-old self-loathing Trey or the 35-year-old angry Trey. I, I may trigger something in her. So there are obstacles. And it does make it harder to make these choices. But even with those obstacles in the way, even with those truths, you must understand, I still have a choice. We can't just stay victims if we want to be victors. If we want to actually find victory in our marriage, we can't just back it down to saying, well, I'm a victim. I'm a victim of who I am and all my baggage, and I'm a victim of what they do. I have a choice. Now, with that in mind, I want to go back now and look at that one verse that we kind of overlooked, and I said I was going to come back to. Look at back at verse 6 of chapter 13. Again, it says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't set up traps 
to catch the other person doing something wrong because we expected it. Because in cynicism, we just kind of assumed the worst of them. We don't set up those traps. Love does not build cases against the other person using all of that baggage as evidence of how rotten of a person they are. Love does not delight in evil. It, does, it rejoices with the truth. That's why Paul immediately follows up this statement with the, the truth that love always protects and always hopes and always perseveres. Believing the best always trusts instead of assuming the worst. When you do that, believing the best instead of assuming the worst, will A, it will protect the relationship from suspicion and lack of trust. Turns out Elvis was right. We can't go on together with suspicious minds. Because love will protect the relationship from that suspicion as you learn to trust and to believe the best in your spouse. Believing the best instead of assuming the worst will also be a little hope for the best in the relationship. In other words, love will trend to the positive. It will hope that this will get better It can be better because I see so many good things in my spouse. And just so that you don't think that the Bible is denying any struggles, it also perseveres. It's honest about the fact that there's going to be times of struggle. There's going to be things from your past that come roaring into your present that make it difficult to make this choice. But love will decide whether or not to fight for it or to give it up. Church, there's going to be gaps. That's the bottom line. Every couple, every relationship will experience gaps. But happy couples have come to realize that they actually have a choice. They get to decide what goes into that gap, those gaps. And they always come out better in the end if their decision is to believe the best of their spouse every time rather than to assume the worst. But here's where the rubber meets the road. Because after this series, and now we're, we're getting ready to go back to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and it, you know it's been a great study, but after this series, are you willing to risk believing the best of your spouse? I know that in your box of desires that was in there, your, your, your heart wants to trust, okay? One of your desires was you wanted to trust your spouse. I know. People who let you down the least are the people you admire the most. Trust means believing the best about your. Will you choose to trust? Now, one last thing before we end this time together. Trusting does not mean that you ignore what needs to be brought up. It doesn't mean that you avoid talking about those difficult things. But it does mean that even if those conversations have to happen over and over and over again, that you are willing, because of love, because of agape love, because of a practical love that puts the other person first, you are willing to get back on the horse if you can, if you can. It means that you're willing uh, to, to not be so ready to keep the score. It means that even after 70 times 
7. And for if you don't know that biblical reference, look up Matthew 18 to see what I mean about 70 times 7. You still make the choice to go with a generous explanation about why your spouse gave you that gap. Now, we've already talked about where to turn when the situation becomes abusive or when your spouse abandons his or her God-given role in the relationship. And for that, I would continue to encourage you to keep in mind all that we've said from Scripture regarding turning to His Word, turning to your spiritual leaders to practice the steps outlined there in Matthew chapter 18 when confronting sinful behavior. But even through those steps, God has called us as disciples to continue the debt of love and to believe not just the best in our spouse, even amidst struggles, but to believe in God's power to work with two people who are committed to each other in the covenant that God brought them into. I I sure pray that this series has given you some tools. I mean, this is not the end-all, be-all about relationships at all. I don't pretend to even be an expert at relationships, but there are some great things in, in God's Word that gives us tools to help us in our relationships that start to turn sour at times. I sure hope and pray that you are finding some strength and some good tools to put into practice. I I do want to thank again my uh, producer, Lisa Welly, for getting uh, this message up on our podcast. uh, And I'm also grateful for Steve Pittman, who had made everything um, available and and, uh, ready to go in order for us to get online, both uh, on YouTube, on our channel uh, that runs every Sunday, our live stream, and uh, this podcast as well. And I and I am grateful uh, to God for giving us um, marriage. And I pray that we'll continue to look to Him uh, and His wisdom and His Word in order to strengthen our marriages day by day. God bless you. We'll talk to you later.